Cable News In-Depth, where we take a deeper look at the top news stories impacting our community. You're listening to Cable News In-Depth. I'm Althea Billings. Internet companies scoop up a lot of data on their users. The saying goes, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And the outcome isn't just really specifically targeted ads. It can also result in behavioral control and serious threats to democratic norms. Today, we're speaking with progressive radio host Tom Hartman, who's the author of the new book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threatens Us and Our Democracy. The book launches at Powell's on Tuesday, March 8th at 5 p.m. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. I enjoyed reading your most recent book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threaten Us and Our Democracy. But I got to say, it's put me a bit on edge. It comes out on March 8th, and there are so many critical pieces of information in there. Like, even if you followed privacy, surveillance, data mining, all of this kind of stuff, seeing it all in one place really, like, paints the whole picture. So I want to start with the idea of Big Brother, right? That's the title of the book, which comes from George Orwell's 1984. Why did you decide to use that term to characterize the loss of privacy and surveillance phenomena that you describe in the book? That's a great question. Um, well, first of all, because it's a it's a term that everyone's familiar with. It's it, you know it, 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 it doesn't require a lot of explanation. Um, but secondly, because uh, it, it it evokes. Uh, the the notion of a large power overseeing all of us, essentially. It's also why I opened the book with the story of uh, slavery in the South and the persecution of women in the North in the in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, these were, you know, uh, the ultimate personification of Big Brother. In both cases, uh, largely driven by white men. And uh, you had, you know, in order to establish and maintain slavery and in order to establish and try to maintain a theocracy, uh, you have to have essentially a police state. You have to have informants. You have to have spies. You have to have neighbors willing to turn in their neighbors. You have to have, you know, cultural support for that sort of thing. It was here for the founding of our republic. It was here long before the founding of our republic. And uh, now we've got other kinds of Big Brother, other kinds of this, what uh, Alexis de Tocqueville referred to as the vast tutelary power. Uh, it, you know, it takes other forms, but it's uh, it can be no less oppressive. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting way to to set the stage that there is as much as, you know, where Big Brother originates from in 1984, as much as that focuses on technology and maybe a more modern society, that the roots of it and the culture of, you know, controlling people within a society goes goes back a lot further. I, I It was interesting to, to start there and then compare that to the internet age where we are now. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, obviously, in fact, maybe that was a, a little bit of hyperbole, the way that I ended that last answer by, you know, saying it's, it's as oppressive now as it was then, obviously, you know, uh, we're not enslaved uh, was and, and uh, you know, tortured for our religious beliefs. But, but um, you know, Big Brother has been with us all along and, and keeps morphing into different forms. And, and you know, part of it is uh, society's norms changing, and part of it is technology changing. 
and and that's uh, you know later on in the book when I get into you know how the next war will probably be fought, um, you know the next really big war. Um, you know, I, I think that we're going to see technology come to the fore there, too. Right. So, yeah, let's jump into the Internet age where data is being collected, compiled, traded between brokers even. And a lot of it's done by private companies, sometimes by governments. Companies will be using it to predict what you're into, what you might be interested in as a customer. And, of course, we've seen it play out in advertising to political customers, too, with the Cambridge Analytica scandal in 2016, as an example. But what I want to drill down on here is how is this kind of data collection, consumer prediction, advertising, how is that different from more old-fashioned types of, you know, madmen-type advertising, predicting what people want? Yeah, I you know, I, I know this business. I, I uh, used to run an ad agency, in fact, two of them, and and uh, know the business really really well. And you you know you test ads and and you learn everything you can you know about your customers. Um, the difference is that we and and, and and you know you used to be able to infer uh, that particular categories of people would be more interested in particular products, and so you would try to market to them. Um, but you know, uh, whether it's athletics or housewares or whatever it may be. But um, what's happened now is that a couple of very, very large companies and, and really a, a whole industry of them, but the, the ones that everybody knows are like Google and Facebook and, and whatnot, have uh, developed products where they're no longer um, just doing the kind of surface stuff. It's getting super, super granular granular what they know about us to the point that it's not just companies hiring them it's not just like you know a motorcycle uh company uh saying you know i want to i want to market my product to the uh uh you know who who have ridden motorcycles in the past or men who are between the ages of of uh, 20 and 45 years old or 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 even more you know psychologically fine-tuned men who recently got divorced or something like that um instead in many cases the information that these folks have about us is being used not just to offer us products that we would probably want but rather to change our own behavior to change our own worldview to change our own thinking to uh, to create uh, demand for things. Now, it's always been you know the, the the holy grail for advertising and marketing back to the 1920s when you know Ed Bernays arguably started the modern field of advertising and public relations. But now it's been fully realized, and uh, I think you could probably the examples that people are would be most familiar with are the ways that uh, Cambridge Analytica used massive amounts of personal information, you know, right down to food preferences and vacation preferences and, and you know, uh, the types of relationships people have and their friends networks and, and what kind of personality even they have um, to, to guide people to vote for Donald Trump or to vote for Brexit. And we are, you know, it's, it's gone beyond marketing. It's now uh, pretty open manipulation. And it's become a huge business. And uh, if it was just selling products, um, you know, arguably we could probably regulate that. We could wake people up to it. 
But now these exact same systems, the exact same data sets that are being acquired are being used to alter our politics, are being used to alter our worldview, and ultimately are being used to alter the way that our democracy works. And of course, this has been exacerbated by the Supreme Court and Citizens United saying that, you know, when corporations and billionaires want to own politicians, that's just free speech and, and that sort of thing. Um, so it's 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 gone even even beyond that to the to the point where I, I'm arguing that it's actually a threat to democracy, and we need to get some controls in this. In terms of how granular the information is, there's a two or three page streak in the book where I just list the a thousand or so of the data points that are typically bought and sold on the average person among the kind of low rent data brokers. Um, the, the other companies that are that are really into this, the companies that sell your information to, for example, landlords who want to decide whether they're going to rent to you, or retail stores who are going to decide whether they're going to store a credit card or even allow you to, to make a return of a product to the store, or in some cases even allow you to shop at the store, um, and, and using facial recognition when you walk in to flag you. Um, uh, or to airlines who will decide whether, you know, whether they're going to answer your call in three minutes or in 30 minutes um, or how long you're going to be on hold or customer service things. They're bragging quite openly, I mean, proudly, that they don't just have 1,000 data points on you. They've got 15,000 data points on you or 20,000 data points on you or 30,000 data points on you. And when you start thinking about that, that can get like super, super, super granular. I mean, right down to you, like your medical information. And and um, again, this is this is where we're we're wandering into territory uh, that is hostile both to uh, a civil society and I think perhaps more importantly to democracy itself. Yeah, that that list I was going to ask about next because it really is. A shocking experience to, to be confronted with that because the first few seem obvious enough and then it gets increasingly, increasingly granular. Like, you know, if you've used the internet, your name's connected to your phone number and that's connected to where you live. Like, that's not that crazy, but knowing if your parents are divorced and it gets even even more so from there. But I wanted to ask if you'd be interested in doing a, a minor exercise with me. And I thought it might be interesting to use as an example, some of my internet habits, and maybe you could give me a sense of like what kind of data might be out there based on those things. I can try. All right. <laughs> so I'm not too unique, so I, I, I think this will go okay. But So I don't use Facebook, but I do have Instagram. I own an iPhone. At work, we use Google Suite and Slack. My computer is Microsoft. I have a credit card that's linked to my phone and my computer. And we don't have much smart home technology, which was a big, big flag for me uh, in reading the book. But my roommate does have a Google Nest in our kitchen. Are there any of those things in particular that would, would scoop some, some data in particular? All of them are continuously scooping data on you. And the, the dimensionality of that is, is also a piece of data. You know, it's not just silos out there of data collection. These guys are trading data back and forth and they're compiling you know, profiles. And, 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 I th and I think you're right. You're, you're probably kind of average in terms of, you know, how much exposure you have to, to uh, the World Wide Web, uh, you know, to, to, to predators or corporations on the web trying to gather your information. But I, I would think it could be extraordinarily granular. Plus, you know, you've got a, a, a loudspeaker that's, listen, you know, listening to you all the time. 
if you're using a, an email account that you don't pay for, for example, if you're using Gmail, uh, Google is reading every single one of your emails in order to optimize your experience. And in fact, they'll even, they have a feature where as you start to type a sentence, they'll suggest how that sentence should finish. And that's based on their having read your previous emails. They will use your own language. So it'll sound like your voice. Do we really want these companies to know this much about us, particularly when we realize that the reason they want to know this, you know, particularly when we're not paying for the product or service, is because they're monetizing us. Our lives have become the substance of their business model. So uh, I would say that it would probably be fairly easy for any of these companies to compile a fairly, fairly comprehensive profile of you. Yeah, and that kind of goes to my, my next thing. I am now needing a VPN has uh, <laughs> reignited that desire in me. But, you know, there's the saying that if you're not paying for the product, as many of us don't for the use and access to social media, you are the product if you're not paying for it. For some, that might seem like an okay trade. Like you were saying, the predictive text in Gmail, I'm writing emails so much faster. Given the service that you get, you make the trade, they have my data, they can write my emails for me. But what is the real trade you know, substantively outside of that when that data is at stake and we don't have control over it or where it even goes? Well, it, it exists on a whole bunch of different levels, and it depends on how paranoid you want to get in your imaginations of how it could be exploited. Um, you know, uh, what, uh, you know, are there are there things in your private life, uh, you know, a relationship, uh, typically things are, the, are, are, you know, where people most feel sensitive around this kind of thing that if they were revealed would harm you or would embarrass you. We haven't yet seen companies explicitly try to blackmail people, but some of the whistleblowers over at Facebook have suffered somewhat, shall we say. Um, I, you know, I talk about that in the book and I quote some of them. But the potential is extraordinary. And, and I think that this is where we need to just all take a pause and say, wait a minute, do we really want a, a corporation whose first interest, middle interest, and even last interest is not us? but rather their own profitability, their brand, their marketing, all that kind of things. Do we really want them to have this much information about us? The VPN, for example, you know, we're unique among uh, developed countries around the world in that Donald Trump and Ajit Pai ended net neutrality in the United States five years ago or four years ago. Most Americans have no idea what that means even. But what it means is that when you connect to an internet service provider, and now we're it's basically a monopolized business. You know, Comcast is about half of the country, maybe a little less than half. And you've got, you know, a handful of very large internet service providers. They can legally observe everything you do online. And, and I talk about this in the book, down to the point where they can evaluate your personality. And this is one of the data points that I believe Facebook was selling. I'd have to look at the book and see who it was. Um, they can determine based on how hesitant you are as you type certain kinds of words, how slowly or rapidly you type, um, and uh, you know how quickly uh, you interact with individual websites. Tell whether you're a timid person or an assertive person, whether you're feeling depressed or whether you're feeling happy, whether you're feeling angry or whether you're feeling lonely. Or I mean, all, this whole spectrum of emotions that your internet service provider can infer from the way that you're interacting on the internet. And that doesn't even begin to get into content, 
like, you know, is somebody looking at porn sites or are they looking at an exercise site or are they looking at a site that, you know, for counseling people who are have, you know, drug problems or, or other addictions? Um, all of that, all of your activity, every single bit of it, down to your individual keystrokes, becomes data about you that gets sold, that gets monetized. And then once sold, is used essentially against you. It's, it's used to change your behavior in ways that objectively, you, if you were given the choice at the very beginning, you would say, no, I don't want to alter my behavior that way. Right. And I want to dig into that behavioral modification kind of impact because, right, regardless of, you know, if you're a hypercapitalist and are okay being marketed to in this way, it is eerie and kind of creepy to have that much data stored on you. There's is this reaction out there that I, I hear every now and again, which is don't worry about it if you don't have anything to hide or, hey, you need to educate yourself so you don't fall for those super tailored ads. But you also, in the book, highlight that there is this behavioral modification impact outside of, you know, what we've talked about so far, which is the data collection, the marketing, and how that can impact your life. What does the behavioral modification look like? Right. Well, first of all, to anybody who says, I don't have anything to hide, uh, my response would be, oh, cool. Uh, let me put this camera in your bathroom and another one in your bedroom. <laughs> and, you know, all of a sudden people are like, well, wait, 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 a, wait a minute. And yet that's what we're doing. <laughs> you know, smart TV in your bedroom. Hey, it's got a camera on it uh, or at least a microphone. You know, I just I just went off on a tangent. I'm sorry. Uh, what was the question again? <laughs> Some of the behavioral modification impacts that, that we're seeing. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it, there's this concept called social cooling and uh, social cooling is. Uh, not unique to human beings. In fact, it's something that every pet owner knows knows uh, what I'm talking about. And that is that when we know that we're being observed, our behavior changes and we alter our behavior. Your your cat will wait to jump up on the counter and try and snatch the food that, that she's not supposed to have until you're out of the room. You're, you're, same thing with your dog. Um, yeah, but people are the same way. We, we alter our behavior. And so in a in an autocratic system, in a in a, a big brother state, um, and this this speaks to the government side of it more than the corporate side of it. Although corporations do this too, this is this is why the the, the hidden cameras in casinos are actually fairly conspicuous. These giant black bulges from the ceiling, and why they do the same thing in Kmart's and things, so that people know that they're being watched. Um, the the social cooling effect is it, it alters people's behavior in a way that. Uh, sometimes it works to the benefit of the people who are altering the behavior. And that's just, you know, one of the simplest and, and, and uh, examples that probably most people would understand and be familiar with. Um, you know, it, it obviously can go a whole lot deeper and, and get a whole lot more granular. But that social cooling effect is, is one of the things that um, uh, countries around the world that well, you know, the East Germany really mastered this. In fact, there's a chapter about that in the book about, you know, my when I lived in Germany and I visited East Germany and uh, it, literally one third of the country was being paid to spy on the other two thirds of the country. Uh, you know, it was like a gig. People spied on the me members of their own family. And because and the government wasn't particularly bashful about it. Um, you know, the, the people who were the spies weren't always, you know, they didn't wear a, an armband or something, but. And, and frequently weren't even known, but everybody knew that everybody was spying. And so what that did is it, is it essentially diminished dissent. 
even even it, it even diminished the need for punishment of dissent because you know being outed was its own punishment and uh again this is a a, a very dark path for us to to be going down so yeah let's address that in the book you outline very clearly how this kind of thing this surveillance capitalism this invasion or really destruction of the idea of privacy can be so dangerous for democracy what can be done to address the privacy invasions and the explosion of surveillance capital capitalism? Obviously, the EU has done some things, but you propose a, a couple of different solutions. Yeah, well, I think I think the EU's uh, privacy. I mean, you know, if you use a website and or visit, probably most everybody by now has visited a website where it says we use cookies. Will you accept the cookies? The reason why websites are being forced to do that is because if you fail to do that in, your, in the European Union, you can face huge fines. And anybody who has a website that they want Europeans to be able to use, they're they're doing that sort of thing. Um, uh, that's you know that's a starting point. Another one is uh, there was a fellow in Spain years and years ago uh, who uh, back 30 or more years ago uh, was involved in some petty uh, criminal activity and ended up busted and ended up going bankrupt and the bankruptcy notice was published in the local newspaper and what he discovered he has a very very low social media profile uh he, i believe he was a spaniard and what he discovered was that anytime anybody googled his name uh whether it was a potential employer a potential customer a, a potential date um what came up was that 20 years earlier he'd been busted you know or he'd, he'd had this kind of reputational hit and he began begging the, the companies, particularly Google, to, to allow him to have his data scrubbed from, from the Internet and the newspaper that had originally published it. And they all just basically laughed at him. And this went through a series of lawsuits and it eventually became uh, codified as part of European law now as, as something called the right to be forgotten. And you can now say, you know, uh, yeah, that was me 30 years ago, but that's not me anymore. Take that data down. And they have to do it in Europe. Not so here in the United States. Even to things like, you know, a uh, an abusive spouse or or partner putting up, um, uh, you know, video or or stories that reflect poorly on somebody or even are pornographic. You know, there's there we have some ability to take that down if it's explicitly pornographic, but but broadly not so much. So you know, th there are. There are a whole bunch of steps that I think, you know, it would be a really good idea uh, for us to be taking. Um, also, I propose this, the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act, um, you know, which basically is suggesting that both government, police agencies and uh, individual companies should not be able to, to basically gather all this information on us and, and market it. The other the other big warning is, you know, social the China's social credit system. So uh, where, you know, it's sort of like we have credit scores there. You've got a social credit score where uh, instead of just, you know, how quickly did you pay your credit card? And do you have any, you know, have you been a deadbeat on, on your rent? Uh, instead, it's like, uh, you know, uh, did you fail to show up for a reservation in a restaurant? Uh, did you ever talk back to a teacher? You know, what kind of grades did you get in school? How were you evaluated by your neighbors in terms of, you know, did you ever, were you ever having loud parties? I mean, all these kind of little granular pieces of your life go into this score in China that then determines whether a dating website will let you use it, 
uh, determines whether you get a good seat in a restaurant or can even get a reservation, determines what kind of job you get, determines what kind of house you can buy and what neighborhood you can live in, determines what kind of school you can get into. I mean, you know, there, there's a, a long uh, road here uh, that we could travel down and we're, and we're started down that path. Um, the other, the, the final point that I would make is that if, if you were to uh, invite a, a, a couple dozen people over to your house, um, you know, one Saturday afternoon and just, you know, have a wild party and uh, in one corner, somebody is, you know, strangles somebody and kills them. And in another corner, you know, somebody is uh, doing something else that's, you know, equally atrocious and the police were to barge in and break it up. You, as the owner of the house, as the person who invited all these folks in, would be just as responsible or close to just as responsible for the crimes that were committed in your presence, in your home, as were the criminals, the people who engaged in that activity. Um, When the Telecommunications Act of 1996 was put together, they put in this thing called Section 230 that said, you know, we're not going to apply that standard to the Internet. So if you if you build a home on the Internet, a website um, and you invite people in and those people commit crimes, we're not going to hold you accountable for those crimes. And that has, uh, you know, not only been probably one of the main things that enabled uh, many of the social media organizations to become huge multi-billion dollar corporations because they no longer have to police that kind of thing. Um, But it's also led to just a, a, a huge coarsening of uh, dialogue and discourse and, and uh, you know, both political and social and, and moral and just, you know, fundamentally human on the Internet. I used to run forums on CompuServe. Uh, it started back in, in 81. And I, I, at one point I was running uh, almost 30 forums on, on CompuServe. This was before there was the Internet. CompuServe and AOL were the Internet. This was before HTML came along. And um, everybody, and, and the, so therefore, this was before the Telecommunications Act of 96, and everybody had to, uh, you know, we had to know who they were. There, were. there was no anonymity. They didn't have to post their name, but, they, but, but the website operator had to know who they were. And we had, to, we had to check every post before it could go public, or at least monitor them closely enough, you know, and have people that we knew we could trust, and, and then new people would have to prove that they were trustworthy. Because the liability would boomerang back on both CompuServe and Nigel and I as the guys who ran the forums. And uh, as a result of that, you know, CompuServe and AOL back in the day were, you know, pretty decent places. And, uh, you know, a lot of really cool stuff going on. We ran a a forum for ADHD. We ran a forum for Macintosh users. We ran one for, for people using IBM PCs. We ran one about the JFK assassination. We had a forum on UFO sightings. I mean, all kinds of stuff. There were personal relationship forums, and they were all clean, and they were all relatively well run. That all went out the window in 1996. In 1996, by the way, was when CompuServe stopped paying their sysops for doing this work because they no longer needed it. And I'm not saying that we should throw Section 230 out altogether, but we have gone way beyond what's reasonable. And, and, and the consequence of that, in my opinion, has been things like the election of Donald Trump in 2016 and the, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, both of which largely happened as a consequence of uh, this, this kind of anonymous antisocial behavior on social media. 
Well, Tom, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. This is a wonderful book. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up here? I, I encourage people to, to to learn about, whether through my book or, or just doing their own research, to learn about how extensive uh, our privacy has been penetrated. Oh, and one other, one other, one other item that I think is, is really worth noting, because of the, the Bill of Rights, there are a number of areas of our personal privacy that the government theoretically can't penetrate. Uh, but they've gotten around this by simply buying the information from corporations that don't operate under the same constraints. Ron Wyden has been one of the leaders in the United States Senate about trying to do something about that, and Zoe Loftrin in the, in the House. Um, but we really need to be paying attention to that, too. Now you've got, um, you know, for example, Eric Prince coming out, you know, the, 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 the Blackwater guy um, starting a new spy agency that's going to look that's literally going to spy on Democratic candidates and Democratic activists, Democratic big D, like, you know, party partisan um, on behalf of Republican candidates in the Republican Party. That's that should chill all of us. That was Tom Hartman, progressive radio host and author of the book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threaten Us and Our Democracy. The book launches at Powell's on Tuesday, March 8th at 5 p.m. For KBU News In-Depth, I'm Althea Billings.